You see that sermon outline on page 5, that starts with that introductory statement, thank God for the church with all her problems. Thank God for the church with all her problems. Can we do that? Do we do that? Well, we can and do, because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians. Today's passage is just nine verses, and it's the introduction, and I think often it's easy to kind of skim the introductions of Bible books, and skim the kind of ending bits too, because we kind of think, well, that's just kind of like just a Crispus and Gaius and all those, but we don't really... No, no, we need to deeply look into the relationships here, because we're looking into a church. What is a church? It's not a building. It's not how great we can make that building. The church is a people. That's why we call this place Reforming House. This is not this thing that was a play centre once, this or before that a warehouse. This is not a church. This is Reforming House. It's the house for the church. The church is here. It's people who are members of this church, adherents of this church. It's people who Jesus died for. Can we give thanks for the church? With all the people, with all the problems? Yes. You may not know much about 1 Corinthians, and that's, that's okay because we're going to go through it week in and week out. But as we do, as we walk through this book, what you're going to see is, as Paul gives thanks for the Corinthian church, that's very extraordinary that he does that because next week, and from next week, this letter is full of problems that Paul has to address with the gospel. This is a church full of problems, very acute problems. And Paul says, thank God for the church. Now, as you open up 1 Corinthians, um, you may have noticed there's 2 Corinthians, there's two letters. And um, I just want to give you a heads up how these letters work, because as we walk through them, you'll notice Paul's talking about other letters he's written to the Corinthians. And we're thinking, what letter is that? Is it the first letter or the second letter? There seems to be another letter. So I've got a summary on the screen here for you. And um, and this is helpful for us to get our heads around and understand. It won't take long. Because in the Bible that you have in your hands, in the biblical First and Second Corinthians, these two letters, we know from these two letters that Paul actually wrote two other letters. We just don't have them in the biblical canon. We don't have them. Uh, some scholars wonder if actually they're included, like they're being kind of stuck together. So parts of Second Corinthians have some letter and parts of First Corinthians, some, some wonder that. But it's possible that out there somewhere there is a couple of lost letters. But what we know is, and, and so you don't get surprised as we meet it, as we go through First Corinthians, Paul says in First Corinthians 5 verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. So in, in this first letter in our Bibles, he's saying there was another letter before this. Which means, as you see on the screen, the first letter he mentions, not in the Bible, which means actually the second letter is 1 Corinthians. Okay? Makes sense? What we have as 1 Corinthians is his second letter. Now, why is that important? It's just a structural rundown. You could read a whole bunch of commentaries. You could read that. You could do some research. Why is it important? It's important because Paul is not writing out of the blue. Like Paul is not coming in as a pastor saying... You've got some serious issues here. We need to bring in some church discipline. He's not doing that because he's being kind of straight off, uh, you know, my dad used to say, my dad's a retired farmer, and I never understood the phrase, but he said, he's not slipping the belt on. And I just think, what does that even mean? 
I think it means old tractors had a belt pulley and you slipped the belt on too quick and it didn't go well. I don't know. That's just what I think he means. But his point was, Russ, don't go too fast. This is not Paul going too fast. He's not straight away going into it. Oh, no, you've got some problems. He has followed process and been patient and been gracious. And by the time he writes 1 Corinthians, there's been another letter already. Then we get to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in that letter, he says in chapter 2, that he wrote a letter that we don't have again, but the second Corinthians we have, as you can see, is the fourth letter. There is a third letter in between first and second Bible Corinthians. And that third letter, Paul says in second Corinthians, he says, that was a letter I wrote with tears and it was severe. I had to say firm things because there is some serious ungodliness, unholiness, worldliness going on at the church at Corinth. And I wrote with tears, and he says this, I wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. It's easy to not say hard things, isn't it? And we think we're just you know, being nice, but nice is not love. No, love says the hard things. And so that letter is often nicknamed the tearful and severe letter. But why do we say this? Why am I bringing this up? Because we need to always hold in the back of our minds or the forefront of our minds, this is a church, a letter to a church, that is a church full of problems, and yet Paul says straight out the gate, thank God for the church. He doesn't do that for the Galatians. The Galatians, if you read the letter of the Galatians, Paul often has thanks at the start of his letters. There's no letter of, there's no, uh, thanks at the start of Galatians. He goes straight into it because there's heresy going on. He says, I'm astounded. I'm astonished. You're going to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but that, that you would believe a different gospel. But this one, he says, I know you've got problems, but I'm going to give thanks to start with. And in this letter, there are significant themes picked up. Significant themes that the whole Bible speaks about and picks up. There's the death of Christ on the cross, promise fulfillment, there's holiness, the people of God, there's marriage and singleness, the law of Moses, Passover, Lord's Supper, the resurrection of Christ and his church. But every page in 1 Corinthians points to Jesus. In fact, every part of the Bible does. If you read a part of the Bible and don't read it through the lens of the gospel of Christ, you have not read the Bible properly. You've not understood that passage. So it doesn't matter if you're an angry atheist and you say, I've read Leviticus and it's got all those laws that say you Christians are not doing what the Bible says. No, dear angry atheist, let's calm down and let's be less angry. Let's actually look how Jesus shows us how to read Leviticus. As we look in 1 Corinthians, we see so many connections as well to our recent series in Genesis. If you were there or remember or perhaps you've seen it, you've heard the sermon last week, Genesis 19... What was that passage about? It was about how a worldly culture so enculturates us and our thinking that we make decisions that are just like the world and tragically turn out terribly for us. Well, 1 Corinthians is also speaking to that same issue of culture. Even Lot, who was a believer, the New Testament says, Peter says, righteous Lot, 
Even Lot, who, yes, Peter writes, was tormented in his soul over the lawless things he saw, seen and done and heard and he was experiencing. It's even Lot who makes that tragic decision of, look, I can't stop the mob, the bullying, so what I'll do is offer my daughters. And then his daughters make that tragic decision of, there's not a man on the earth, which there is actually, and that's so what we'll do is we'll sleep with our father to extend our line. How do people get to be making those decisions? Because they're so enculturated by the culture around them that that's normal. And the Corinthian church is in that zone. They're so enculturated in that zone that Paul has to write to them out of love, even with tears, even a severe letter. Friends, the Bible is the most transparent book on the planet. The Bible does not pretend, like the world wants to pretend, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm really okay. The Bible has no pretense. It doesn't hide the gritty, awful things of humanity and our total depravity and our sin. The Bible hides nothing and says, this is what we are really like. Lift the veil. We, as Ryan prayed in the pastoral prayer, Jeremiah the prophet, the heart is desperately sick. Evil, sinful, who can understand it? The human heart. And the Bible says, because what is a church? As we'll see, it's a sanctuary of sinners because it has sinners in it. It's a place that is not perfect. It has problems. And Paul says, but I can thank God for you. And he does so personally. This is personal for Paul. Bit of history of the Corinthian church, which is kind of similar to the history of our church in many ways, our local church. The Corinth church was planted around 50, 51 AD, depending how you count it. Right? Paul writes this letter around 53, 54, maybe 55 AD, which means the church had been only going for a few years. It was a young church, a new church. Our cross-reference passage in Acts 18, we saw Paul planting the church at Corinth. That's what that episode was about. And, and did you notice when he was planting the church, he's in Corinth and he's planting the church, did it go kind of well? Was the, was the city like, oh, we love having a new church in town. We should welcome you at the town hall and get you among the dignitaries. We'll have you at the prayer breakfast. Is that what they did? Are you noticed? That city was not welcoming of a church in town. And then... God does things. As his word is preached, God changes people. That's what preaching does. Can you imagine if for preaching I stood up in front of a sermon, before a sermon and said, hey church, this sermon has nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with you at all. I'm just going to preach in platitudes for 40 minutes and then pray. Why bother? You have better things to do with your time. And sermons, scripture are for our hearts. They're for change. That's how God changes people and shapes them into the image of his son. And God changed people in Acts 18 in Corinth. You see this? We see uh, in Acts 18 extraordinary things. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, he's converted. And what do they do then? Well, they need a new ruler, so they replace him with Sosthenes. You know what happens at the end? Sosthenes, who is the ruler of the synagogue, gets beaten up. But do you notice, who does Paul write to and who does he write from? Verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Sosthenes. Sosthenes got converted too. You can't stop the gospel. If God wants to change people by his word, you can't stop that as he drags people from death to life. And that's what he's doing in Corinth and it causes a stir and this persecution breaks out. 
They beat up Sosthenes. They want to track down Paul. Paul planted this church in hardship. Church planting is never easy. Church planting is hard. Paul planted this church in hardship with his team of leaders. He watered it. He's there for about 18 months, which means for Paul, he loved this church. So when he heard of divisions and false teaching, he wrote these letters out of love. And he says loving and firm things for their faith and life in Christ. And as he does this, he says, I'm thankful for you. And particularly, first point on the outline there, verses 1 to 4, after all that context, he's thankful for the grace of God that saves us. Look at verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you, and here's the conjunction, the connecting word. Here it is. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul shares with them what begins his prayer for them, and that is overwhelming thankfulness. That is always thankful for God to them. So when he's thinking about a church with problems, he doesn't kind of want to point out all their problems and list it. He wants to say, first of all, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for this church. Friends, That's not always obvious to do, is it? Here is a church full of division, pride, factionalism, disunity, discord, boasting, bitterness, puffing up against one another. And I'm just listing the stuff listed in Corinth in this letter. Let alone the incestuous relationship in chapter 5, the lack of church discipline there, and lawsuits against one another, and the sexual immorality. And Paul gives thanks for them. This is extraordinary. Not a note of bitterness. Not a note of I'm better than you. And you all got problems that I don't have problems. Friends, sometimes it can be hard to know what to pray, can't it? But here Paul highlights the possibility for us that if you don't know what to pray for today, tonight, as your head hits the pillow, you could at least give thanks for grace. Because the only way your head hit that pillow tonight is by God's grace. And the only way that you could know that if you did not wake up on that pillow in the morning but were meeting the one who saves you is by God's grace. Who needs grace? Have a think about this. Bit of reflection time. Who needs grace? People with problems. That's who needs grace. People like me. People like us. Who doesn't want grace? Who won't give grace to others? Self-righteous people. Hypocrites. You may have heard the phrase, but for the grace of God go I, but do you believe it? It's very easy to point out the problems of others. Oh, those people over there and those people over there, I just wish they were more like me, you know. But do you believe 
but for the grace of God go I. We're all created by God for a relationship with God. That's what we saw at the start of our Genesis series. Yet the problem is in our heart, and the heart of the problem is sin. Because sin whispers from our heart into our ear, trying to change our minds about God. Sin whispers this, wouldn't you do a better job of being God? You do a better job of knowing what to do around here. You're the one that should rule. You're the one that should be in control. You're the one that should be the leader. Sin whispers, you are actually a good person. You don't need to self-reflect or repent. Sin says, you don't need to love God and love others. You're the one that should get all the love. And you don't need to give grace to others. You should just get all the grace and all the niceness. And they need to earn your love. But thanks be to God, he is not like that. Because he is not like me and he is not like you. He does not treat people like that. The reason God commands us to love him with all our heart is not because God is egocentric like us, not because he needs our love to make him feel better like us. It's because he knows if we love anything more than him, it will betray us. We believe the lie that life without God means we have liberty. And actually, it doesn't bring freedom. Instead, sin shrivels our hearts and shackles us to death. And sin is killing us. It's killing us, friends. We are dying because of sin. We deserve death and hell. Yesterday, um, Two o'clock in the afternoon, Chloe, like Amy was out, I think she was, we'd, we'd do a sort of shift cleaning the building, Amy was out doing her part, night was coming later, and, and I just thought it was going to be an easy afternoon at home, the boys are on video games, they're still in their pyjamas, I'm telling our family secrets now, they won't like that. Chloe comes out of her room, puts a jumper on, says, Dad, we are going on an expedition to find a diamond in a mine. And I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that's a good idea, Chloe, and... uh Convince the boys first and we'll see how we go. Right? And so she goes to the boys, boys, turn that off. We're going to find a diamond in a mine. They were not convinced. So we arranged it and Amy sorted out home. Anyway, Chloe and I go on the trip. And I know there's no caves or mines in our neck of the woods that at least would be safe for a five-year-old and a 45-year-old father who doesn't know what he's doing. So we're walking. We walk block after block, she wants to be the leader, block after block. We ended up, we're in White Hills, we ended up in the cemetery at White Hills. That was a long walk, if you know where we live. And we spent then another hour, an hour and a half, just reading, well, I read them out to her, the graves. Teaching her not to walk on graves, it's not what you do, it's out of respect. Teaching her not to take the flowers off the graves, because they're pretty, and there's someone else's flowers for that person. But here is what we talked about. Because some of those graves have a good man or just a good friend. It's nice, it's okay. 
I just find it slightly discouraging, but when I get encouragement, it was when I read from Grace from 1859 or 1979, known unto Christ. The testimony of that person. I said, Chloe, where are those people now? And she said, five years old. She said, not because we're great at discipleship, mind you. As you heard, not great. She said, well, if you don't trust in Jesus because of sin, you go to hell. If you trust in Jesus, he forgives you, you go to heaven. Five-year-old can get that. We pray a world would get that. Pray the church would believe that. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Isn't that beautiful? Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset, but eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. We are lost in the world without hope, but for the grace of God. The word grace means undeserved favour or free gift, and what Paul writes about this free gift particularly is not a substance, it's not something you can kind of chug down on a Sunday and get some more grace and merit it to your life. Grace of God, as you keep seeing in the Scriptures, is a person. He's a person. It is God in Christ who deals with the problem of sin and death. Jesus Christ is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. So friends, Christians are the most thankful people on the planet. Well, at least we could be the most thankful people on the planet. We have every reason on earth and in heaven to be thankful, don't we? For believers, Christ's church has been given, as we've sung, grace unmeasured, vast and free, paid for my sins, brought me to life, and now clothes you with power to do what is right. That clothing with power we sung, all our songs connect to our preaching that day, our sermon. That clothing with power is what Paul talks about next. He's thankful for the God who gifts us. Verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony that Christ was confirmed among you, so you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what we're going to see in this series is the church at Corinth was a very gifted church. They are a, by worldly standards, an impressive church. People would come along and go, wow, your church is pretty great. And they wouldn't reply with, well, actually, just get to know us. We'll disappoint you pretty soon. You know? No, they would reply with, yeah, we are. And Paul has to address boasting in this church repeatedly. They measure themselves against one another. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if you compare yourselves to one another or you compare preachers or leaders or whatever it is or compare churches, he says in 2 Corinthians, then you are without understanding. You have no idea what you're talking about. This is that church. They're so gifted, but they can't see the giver for all the gifts they've been given, which is a great shame to them. They're full of pride. As I said before, pride is like a balloon. See, what happens when you blow up a balloon? It gets bigger. It's pretty simple, isn't it? I should be a science teacher. Um, I'm nowhere near capable of being a science teacher. It gets bigger. But what happens to the walls of a balloon as it gets bigger? They get thinner, more liable to pop. That's the problem of pride. If you pop it, it deflates. 
quickly. The problem of focusing on the gifts is you miss the giver. And these problems can plague churches. What we can do is we focus on how we do things in the church. We need to be doing things and overlooking how we do things. If you ever listen to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, you will know what I'm talking about. We planted this church 10 years ago. Back then, church planting was very fashionable. Like, if you wanted to be cool, you got yourself a Mickey Mouse T-shirt, a black jacket, some gel on your hair, and you used words you probably shouldn't words use in preaching because it was cool and edgy. And there was a person doing this, and everyone thought this person's so great they'd fly them all over the world to tell you how to plant churches until if you listen to the podcast... That podcast made me actually shake at times. But if you listen to the podcast, until a person did not have the character to match being a pastor. Friends, we live in a world where people get impressed with gifts. We get impressed with people doing spectacular things. Paul says, you were gifted here in this passage, he said, with speech and knowledge. These are the two things that trip the Corinthians up. Because they think, if you've got an impressive speaker, or any sort of word gift going on that impresses people, if you've got particularly special knowledge, and you've got great wisdom. Wow, we're impressed. And they overlook character. They overlook a person. The most important thing for a leader, or for a church, by the way, is a culture that is a character of Christ. It's not how good you can do the job, it's how you do it like Jesus. And so therefore, Paul highlights in this section how important holiness is. Look, I'm personally concerned about, I think that sometimes in churches we we let go of of some things a bit. We need to talk about them more. I am concerned about holiness. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican minister, kind of post-Reformation, but 1800s, writes a lot about holiness. Robert Murray McShane, in the same kind of period, was a Presbyterian pastor. He wrote that Bible-reading plan that's really hard to do because it's so big. Read lots of Bible. Great guy. But Robert Murray McShane said... What my people, that is the church he pastors, need most of all is my holiness. It's my personal holiness. Paul writes in verse 2, have a look. He calls the church something. He calls them a name. He calls them those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Not once, but twice. The word saint, you'll never guess, comes the word sanctified. Sanctified, in their English. And it means Holy. It means set apart. That's what holiness means. Now, theologically, we know the full biblical picture of holiness is, we know this from well places like Romans 6, 7 and 8, but holiness is in, in two major ways. First, it is positional. Holiness is positional. So that when you become a Christian, you are set apart as holy. And secondly, it's progressive so that we are to grow into our holiness and grow in holiness all our life until lastly it's fully revealed that we are holy in Christ forever. It's positional and it's progressive. And God's people are to reflect his holiness. Leviticus 11 is picked up in 1 Peter. We are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be godly. In other words, not worldly. In a world of worldly church culture where the church has not been transparent, 
where it has done evil. We've had had royal commissions into church abuse. In a world like that, that's our world. It's why we value safe church units. It's why we value that safety and care. Our denomination values that. We value it as a local church. It's because the holiness of the church, to be set apart and godly, matters to Jesus most of all. Two things seem to set off Jesus pretty consistently. I know that sometimes us men, I'm speaking generally, but us men go, you know what I like about Jesus? I like that he turns tables. I'm going to do that. Like, well, good on you, but that's got a bit of context and I don't think you understand what it means. I don't think you understand what you think that means about that. No, no, no. You want to see what really stirs Jesus? Jesus will welcome tax collectors and sinners. He'll welcome prostitutes. He'll welcome Zacchaeus. He'll welcome all sorts of people. But the two areas that Jesus really gets stirred up about is this. One, hypocrisy. Pretending. You're with painted smiles. You're fine, you're righteous, you're okay. Everyone else is not. He hates that. And secondly, anyone who harms children or doesn't let them get to Jesus. Better that a millstone be thrown around their neck. Holiness of the church matters to Jesus. Character matters. A culture of Christ. The Corinthian church was enriched in all speech and knowledge. They weren't lacking in any gift. But what they were lacking in, as we'll see from the rest of the letter, is holiness. They lacked holiness. They thought it was okay to use foul language. It was okay to, to, to talk about sex and, and to think of sex as something like a commodity to be traded or to be enjoyed on the side. They approved of incestuous relationships. They thought church discipline should never be done because that's just being harsh. This was a church that was not godly, not holy, and that needed to change. They needed to see that gifts come from the word grace, and therefore those gifts, we can't congratulate ourselves for them. Can you imagine being given a gift to serve in the church and going, congratulations on me, I'm so good at this. That would be so weird and wrong. We don't congratulate ourselves for the gifts. I didn't give myself gifts. You didn't give yourself gifts to serve in the church. God gave you those gifts. And what's the purpose of the gifts? To serve with love and grace. As we, verse 7, wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, we can be thankful for the grace of God that sustains us. Verse 8, he will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These are words that are written to a church that is tied up in troubles. As we keep reading this letter, we can see they are plagued by problems. And friends, that is where the gospel of grace is needed. The good news is, In a world where it's hard to endure, the good news is the gospel of grace saves us and sustains us and helps us last to the end. It doesn't depend upon how strong you are. It depends upon how strong he is. God is faithful even for failures like us. Actually, no, especially for failures like us. And those whom God has called, make no mistakes, he will be faithful too. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Rest for the weary, grace for the guilty. 
There's a famous pastor who said, he once said, it never sat right with me. He once said, the church is the hope of the world. And that was put on banners over churches and up in lights. The church is the hope of the world. You know, the meme quote thing. Look, I could be wrong. I often am. I'm just, I'm just Russ. And I've got lots of weaknesses and failings. But you read the Bible. Let's just be particularity matters, particularly in theology. The church is not the hope of the world. Christ is. Now, yes, the church is the body of Christ. And, and the church is the, the, the mission team of Jesus. So we try and teach our children what is the church. And we give them a doctrine of church. But we also want to show them that we have compassion for the world. What is the church? It's a rescue team. It's Jesus' rescue team for going into the world. We run into the problems to rescue people. Now, Jesus is the hope of the world. Yes, Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me when it's the church being persecuted? But the church is the body of Christ, which means, friends, and I hope you know this, but if you, if you don't, I'm not Jesus. Glad we're all clear on that. But you're not Jesus. Our elders are not Jesus. The church is not Jesus. The church is not the hope of the world. It is the team that has the hope of the world. His name is Jesus Christ. He is Lord over sin and death, and he's going to return. And oh, we wait. We wait and long for his return. Some days, it's just more clear in our minds, I wish it was right now. Pray for it. But as we wait, what are we doing? We pray, come Lord Jesus, come that last prayer of the New Testament. What are we also doing? We're praying that the church would be ready that the church would have a culture of Christ growing among us. This is where we finish. We thank God for the church, not because it's a parade of perfect people, but because, as Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, the church is a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. Spurgeon said, the church is the dearest place on earth. Why is the church dear? Because Jesus died for her. The church is dear to Jesus. In this little passage before you on your lap there in your hand, I want you to notice this. There are nine verses. And in nine verses, Jesus is named nine times. That's an extraordinary hit rate for something to be mentioned. Nine times Paul mentions Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one who is thankful par excellence. Jesus is the measure of church health. Jesus is the measure of maturity we are looking toward. Jesus is the one that we would pray we would be like as a church. We don't pray we'd be like someone else or some other community. We pray that we would be more like Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who died for the church. He designed the church. We are bought by his blood, we are his body. Paul and his team planted the church at Corinth and the Corinthian church was dear to Paul. He shed tears over them. I'll let you know something personally for us. We who planted reforming 10 years ago know how he feels. And if you're with us for a while, you'll know what it's like, you become a member here, 
to shed tears over the church. For the church is dear to us. Friends, this is the most significant season in the life of Reforming Church since we planted 10 years ago. We are at a cultural crossroads. The season we are in is one where there are two church culture pathways before us, just like there were at Corinth. And for us now, it is over to you, it is over to the church. It is for the church to pray, what do we want to be like as a church? What kind of culture do you want here? Do you want a culture of Christ? Or do you want some other culture that is not of Christ? These first few verses of 1 Corinthians are a prayer that can shape our prayers. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks for one another, for reforming church. For your grace, we are grateful that saves us and now we pray will shape us. We ask that your grace would train us to be less like the world and more like Jesus as we look forward to his return and life with him forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.